Welcome to Dungeon Talk. Higher level learning for your tabletop game. And now, because you botched when you rolled for initiative, here's Evan and Michael. Hey, what's up? This is Evan. And Michael. And this is Dungeon Talk, episode 28. On today's episode, we are bringing you a special interview from the guys at Primeval Thule from the Sasquatch Game Studio. (laughs) Close enough. Move on. Perfect. All right. We just finished a Google Hangout with the guys from uh, Sasquatch Game Studio. And it went really well. Uh, the first, the couple days leading up to it was a little iffy. We didn't know exactly what was gonna if if we were gonna be able to pull it off. We were having a bunch of techno technological difficulties. Is that yeah. right? Technological yeah. difficulties. It, it basically was like the Apollo thirteen movie where we had multiple laptops set up. There were wires going everywhere. It it was a fiasco and a half, but it all came together at the end. And those guys did a fantastic job putting up with us. And we were nervous about doing it. At least I was. I know we've talked about trying to do some interviews before. It hadn't really worked out. But this was a great first experience, at least on our end. They may have thought we were morons, but they did a great job. And I couldn't be happier with how it turned out. Yeah, it went really, really well. Um, like you said, that they're just really easy talking. And I have to say, for doing our first interview for this podcast and the website... I couldn't have asked it to go any better. Like I said, it was just a great experience uh, doing it with those guys. And uh, if you're not familiar with who these people are, it's uh, Richard Baker, Stephen Schubert, and David Noonan. All three have a long pedigree with role-playing games, specifically Dungeons & Dragons. They, uh, they have a, a long, illustrious career, and they decided to get together and create their own studio or their, their own company. They called it a Sasquatch Game Studio. And their first product is something called Primeval Fool. And it's a setting for Dungeons & Dragons, 4th Edition, Pathfinder, and 13th Age. And it's a kind of a Conan meets Cthulhu setting, uh, swords and sorcery inspired. I think they they have on their website, they have sort of a Thule in seven sentences. And, you know, your characters will be adventurers, not necessarily heroes. There is a, there's something about the setting that really connected with me. It kind of reminded me of the games I, I first started running when uh, when I got into Dungeons & Dragons. I would like to think that um, I've matured as a gamer, but there's something about that type of game that really appealed to me. They, they were on Kickstarter. I backed them. Uh, the this last thing I wanted to mention is, uh, as a backer of Primeval Fool, uh, one of the things that I get at the level I backed is a uh, hosted game. And uh, we're going to do that at Gen Con 2014. So I don't know which one yet. Uh, maybe Rich, I think. But it's still up in the air. It's going to actually run a game for me and five people. I'm going to have a couple of the seats that I've already sort of promised to people, assuming that Gen Con works out. It is months months away. Uh, but at least one seat is going to be open that we're going to do a contest through the website for. Uh, we're going to play in the 13th Age version of Primeval Thule. So the contest is going to revolve around people that want that seat to submit their idea for their one unique thing. And then um, the guys at Sasquatch Game Studio, as well as Evan and I, are going to kind of pair through them and pick out our favorites. And then we're going to post the favorite ones on the website as a poll 
and whichever one gets the most votes will be the person that gets that seat. Uh, again, there'll be at least one. I'm, I'm thinking there might be two that I'm going to give away this way. Uh, we're going to play the game at Gen Con 2014. We're going to record it, and then it'll go up on the podcast, on the website as well as a podcast. So without any further ado, here is Richard Baker and Stephen Schubert talking to Evan and I about Primeval Fool. Enjoy. All right, so we are recording. Um, Evan and I are going to record sort of a, an intro for this, so you know we're not going to do a whole lot of like introductions. Uh, but for the people who, just to make sure they know who's talking, we'd like for you guys to introduce yourself. And if you could tell us specifically within Sasquatch Game Studios, like what your title is or what your main job responsibilities is. So again, we'll start with you, Rich. Okay. Uh, my name is Rich Baker. Uh, I'm a longtime veteran of the RPG industry. Uh, I worked with Witches of the Coast uh, from uh, well, essentially 1997 through 2001, uh, 2011. And uh, uh, nowadays, uh, I'm the uh, CEO and uh, uh, co-founder of Sasquatch Game Studios. Thank you, sir. And then Stephen? Um, I'm Stephen Schubert. Um, I am the design director of Sasquatch Game Studios and also a co-founder. Um, I have, uh, of course, worked with Wizards of the Coast for many years. I worked from, uh, what, 2004 to 2012 or so, um, 2011 maybe, uh, and uh, did a number of um, freelance books before then uh, with them as well. So I've had a lot of experience doing D&D related things um, and yeah now we're doing Sasquatch as far as our specific responsibilities within Sasquatch we're we're sort of a three-headed monster we kind of all do a lot of the same stuff um, uh, I've been doing a lot of the uh, the sort of business back-end as well as the um, uh, the website and the uh, the Kickstarter page updates so usually when those things come out that's me typing in all the words for that so um, okay, and yeah. then with some technical difficulties, uh, the the third of the three-headed monster wasn't able to be here. Um, so, so if you guys will step in for Dave and kind of talk about what he does or what he brings to your team. Uh, sure. Uh, Dave Noonan is another uh, uh, longtime uh, RPG uh, uh, industry uh, professional. He, uh, like us, uh, worked at the Wizards of the Coast for a number of years. Uh, Dave uh, is our creative director, and... Uh, uh, amongst uh, his uh, various collateral duties, uh, uh, he's uh, doing a fair amount of graphic uh, graphic layout. Uh, um, he's he's doing some cartography for us, doing some cartography coordination. Uh, it turns out uh, I never knew it, but Dave is actually quite handy with uh, InDesign, Photoshop, and uh, Adobe Illustrator, and uh, he is uh, uh, working right now on on the world map. In fact, oh, excellent. Well, thank you guys for that. Um, so again, we just want to talk a little bit about Primeval Thule and uh, a little bit about kind of where, where it came from and where it's going and when we can expect to see it. But I did actually want to start off by asking about the name Sasquatch Game Studios. Is there, a, is there something behind that name? If you said it before, I missed it, but the name this is it's unusual, so I'm wondering where that came from. Uh, well, actually, uh, we had an idea uh, back, uh, back in, oh gosh, February or March that Hey, we three of us could get together and, and start a, a game company, and we did all the hard stuff, or so we thought. Like you know, doing the business organization and coming up with with a plan of the products we wanted to do, and thinking about the things that are all involved in this. Uh, and it turns out, like the hardest thing was actually settling on a name that we all liked. We 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 made lists of names, we we vetted them uh, around, we we checked them against the wives and the and the and the friends and. 
And uh, I, I think I know my wife shot down at least two or three names we liked. Uh, Dave's wife shot down a couple of names. So we wound up with uh, Sasquatch Game Studio because that was a name that two out of three of us liked well <laughs> enough, and we okay. just strong armed Steve into living with it. Michael and I joke all the time about that the hardest part about creating our website was just coming up with a name. We spent weeks deciding what we wanted to call it. Yeah, and then we actually didn't do a good job vetting the first time, and we had to rebrand because there was a website very similar that we we missed in our searches. So, yeah, so, uh, so I, I can appreciate how difficult that can be. Yeah, so, we, we had a similar experience, right, coming up with the names because getting a URL that we could use for for the, the game studio was going to be the biggest challenge we had, right? I think the first couple things we thought of we actually didn't use because the URLs were taken. And even Sasquatch Game Studios, or Studio, one studio, not multiple, right. uh, was, we couldn't go with like Sasquatch Games because there was already some trademark or something on that. So we had to append Studio on top of that in order to right. uh, yeah. make it work. It is amazing uh, the when you start doing that because we went through the similar process. The things that you think of, you're like, that's a great name. It's, you know, it came out of the ether. Now someone thought of it like two years ago when they already had it. Right. <laughs> awesome. Well, you kind of touched on it already, but I, I wanted to ask too about. So, did you guys decide you wanted to get together and make a company, and then you're like, so now what? And Thule came out of that, or did you have this idea for the setting and form the company to get it out there? Uh, actually, kind of more the latter. Uh, uh, Thule kind of came into being, so to speak, because uh, I was uh, making a lot of really long commute uh, commutes. I was driving back and forth to Redmond, uh, which, uh, uh, that, for people who know nothing about Washington geography, uh, that was about 80 minutes one way. Oh, wow. Uh, so I had a lot of time to sit there in a the car and kind of think about interesting and, and new things that, that I could be doing instead of being in the car. And the thought, you know, came to my mind when I was thinking about uh, uh, sort of the opportunities and what the state of the industry was and, and where I thought there might be some uh, some things that, that, you know, hadn't been done in a while. And I, I kind of feel that the industry really got away from uh, from making worlds, right? That, that one of the big cool things that the RPG business has done for decades is just invent in, uh, these amazing inventive awesomely creative fantasy settings and give people a chance to explore them. And over the course of the last five, ten years, I feel like that's something that has kind of fallen out of fallen out of favor a little bit. It's something that uh, people are doing less and less of because because the business model for it is tough, to be honest. Uh, but as I was making those long drives, I was thinking and uh, I was like, hey, you know, someone ought to try and make a world again. That would be really cool. I'd love to be involved in making a new world. And that immediately led to the question of uh, the next thing you think of you know, for the next uh, 20 minutes of the drive is, hey, okay, so fine. What world did you make if you could make any world you wanted? You know, what are the what are the opportunities out there? Uh, so uh, me, Dave, and Steve have been gaming together for a number of years. Uh, they're, they're good friends of mine as well as former colleagues at Woods of the Coast. And uh, so I, I, I basically kind of sprung it on them and, and said, hey, guys, I... I've got this idea. I think there's an opportunity for uh, a couple of smart guys like us to, uh, to 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 make new to make new worlds again. And this is a way I think we can do it. And and here's a here's an idea of a world of, uh, for an uh, an idea for a world that I I think is something that we could have a lot of fun with. Um, you know, there are a dozen different worlds we could build, but let's let's kick it around. Let's start with something. And and the idea that obviously was in my head was 
uh, something that was very uh, uh, very inspired by the art of Frank Frazetta, something that had a bit of that classic sword and sorcery vibe, something that would let us show a world that looked a little bit different from the D&D uh, uh, armored up, uh, you know, super equipment up uh, look of 3rd edition, 4th edition uh, worlds that are out there. Uh, so that, that's essentially where where the initial genesis was, and and obviously with uh, discussing this uh, basic kernel of an idea with Dave and Steve, we we instantly started you know adding on our own thoughts about uh, you know refining the idea. I just came to him really with a very loose concept and and maybe like one piece of paper, and 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 Thule is the the result of starting with that germ and. and and I was going to then say watering it with beer because we met in the tavern and talked about it quite a lot. You know, hey, that's how it happens. Did you get any? Uh, you're crazy, or did you have? Uh, was it easy to get uh, bites on it right away? Uh, well, Steve would be a good guy to to, to answer that one, I think. Sure. I, so part of the idea that that was compelling was actually the not just you know throwing this uh, Conan style world in there, but as we were talking through it and realizing that we could bring in a little a little bit of the Cthulhu aspect, which is, to be fair, in, in uh, pop culture isn't the right word, but pop, pop culture among D&D fans or, or role-playing game fans, right? Cthulhu is certainly a, a thing that, that um, is relatively big these days, right? Uh, yeah. But adding that in to the mix and, and kind of making that, that primeval world that really drew on uh, the, you know, sort of not just the Robert E. Howard stuff, but all the contemporaries around that sort of pulp fantasy um, of uh, you know the the Clark Ashton Smith stuff, and then you get there's a, a Lovecraft um, and and mythos sort of uh, vibe that that also filters through all of that because all of those writers were contemporaries. They all wrote together. They all wrote letters to each other, uh, and the stories mesh fairly well, even though many of them are of course set in different eras or whatever. But um, so the idea of, of a Conan and Cthulhu mashup uh, more directly in the setting, I think, was was what was particularly appealing. Mostly because it's just it doesn't have a lot of uh, other competition in the sort of D twenty um, uh, or third edition, fourth edition style of play. So that that's really what what drew us to that, or drew me to that. Um, as far as the specific deal, I mean, I think or idea, I think we've been. Uh, modifying it over, you know, the or had modified it over the few months that we started working with it, but it, it's still the core of it is very true to, to what Rich brought us initially. I know one of the things when I first uh, came across the Kickstarter that appealed to me is I think there's a there's a kind of a traditional version of D&D where they meet in the tavern, they go explore the dungeon, they come back to town and rest up, and I think in Thule, you don't go back to town to be safe. Town doesn't seem to be like a safe place either. It's just a different dangerous environment than the wilds. And for some reason, that just really appealed to me and kind of reminded me of the games I used to run as a kid. I'd like to think I could run them better now, but still, that's the type of adventure that I kind of, uh, I kind of, it just stuck with me. Yeah, there's there's a lot of nostalgia right now for for old school style of gaming where everything is dangerous, including the cities. Right. That yep. that you're right. That that draws all of us into writing for this because it's so interesting to make a world where you're not just making here's your veil with a bunch of nice people that take care of you when you're you know done adventuring. No, you, you're going to get attacked by everything you meet unless you're stronger than them. I was just going to make the observation that Dave really uh, drilled that home for us uh, in an early playtest campaign he was running uh, a few months ago towards a, uh, back around uh, uh, May and June. 
where he uh, he created this uh, this this city that he called uh, Imistral, um, which was a, a, a decadent uh, city, kind of falling into ruin because uh, it, all the the ruling all the all the people of the city or the, anyone who, who could afford it was uh, was essentially living uh, half in a dream state through the the black milk. They were uh, they're high on <laughs> yeah. Okay. And of course, uh, uh, you know, horrible monsters were roaming the streets, and they didn't care because you know they were just whacked all the time. They they were totally out of touch. And man, my my barbarian was anxious to get out of that town. It's like let's let's get out of the jungle where it's safe. This place <laughs> exactly. is crazy. Yeah, I can deal with a thirty foot long python, but this is a little bit outside my area of expertise. So we, we talked a little bit on the on the Kickstarter. I want to I have a couple questions around that, but. An observation I had based on what Rich was saying, for me, I think one of the reasons why maybe not as many people or companies are focusing on creating game worlds is that with the propensity of Kickstarter, it's easy to make a game now. Like the people that used to be like, well, I can't recreate D&D, so I'll make a setting. Now it's like, I'll make my own game and I'll kickstart it and it'll, you know, it'll be out there. So do you think that's part of it, that it's the propensity and the easiness of getting a new game system created as people more focused that. on that? Yeah, I mean, you've you've also got uh, there's. It's not that there aren't new worlds, you know, being created. It's just a lot of them are being created along with another game, right? Numenera or um, or even Thirteenth Age has has this implicit world with all of its NPCs and icons and so forth. That um, you, you get a a world built with that, and there is a lot of creativity and a lot of great work going into building up those worlds. But they're they're also very integrated in their their actual uh, game systems, right? It's not just a world for a world's sake. It's a a world to to show off those game set uh, game systems. Um, so, yeah. I, so, did, so was there ever a conversation where you guys thought along the same lines, like, hey, let's let's create a game for Primeval Fool, or was that always we just want to do a setting that can be transported to other other game settings or other game systems? I, I felt uh, pretty pretty strongly from the start that we wanted to to capitalize on the availability of of a pretty good common base of information out there in the audience, right? It, it, in in our little corner of the, of 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 the hobby business, right? Everybody knows how to play uh, third edition D and D or its or its descendant Pathfinder, right? I mean those those are a really good common common experience, a common touchstone that people you know you don't have to you don't have to teach people how how a wizard works in 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 three uh, E or even four E, right? Because enough people have played those games that they just know how they they work. Uh, creating a new game system is an is an entirely more ambitious project than creating a setting because not only do you need to come up with uh, interesting adventure opportunities, good art, good uh, good writing, good good ideas, uh, you also have to have a lot more uh, Iterations of playtesting and mechanical development that, uh, by just creating a world that uses the OGL or the fourth edition uh, game system license, that we're, we can just take advantage of the fact that you know Wizards of the Coast and Paizo have done all that development work for us for for years and years, and we're not going to do it better than they did faster. Uh, or, I mean, obviously we know things we might tweak on and improve in those game systems because we're very familiar with them, but by and large. That that's a, that that's work that you know, there's no reason to do that work unless unless it's really the work you want to do. I I can completely understand that. Now with the Kickstarter campaign, uh, you know there's again there's just tons of them like every day there's a new RPG or setting coming out on Kickstarter, 
And there's some of those like Dwarven Forge and Reaper Minis that really I don't I wouldn't call them Kickstarters. Those are pre-orders. Um, was there was there a Plan B for Thule? Like if you guys didn't fund on Kickstarter, was was that it, or was there something else maybe that we could have done to get this to setting out after the fact? I think that um, I mean generally we we of course put all of our effort toward the Kickstarter initially because we we when we were thinking about actually making this a product as opposed to just something that we could you know, spend a little bit of our hobby time working on, right? Or, or if, you know, it, it's, it grows beyond just the world that I'm going to set my D&D campaign in and, and into something bigger. Uh, at that point, when we're committing that much time and effort toward it, we really want to try to make sure there's a, a market for it. So that's the one thing that the Kickstarter lets you do is um, really, you know, define what your project is and, and, and get excited about selling or, or producing a specific thing and try to find all of the people that are interested in, in, in helping you out with that, right? And you know, we, of course, found over 800 people that were willing to do that, um, which is great because that, that gives us the flexibility and the, uh, the time and the resources to make, uh, make the campaign setting as good and, and exciting as we want and actually make a quality product. Um, if the Kickstarter hadn't gone through, then... I mean, we'd certainly have a lot of the creative effort, but whether it would end up being a thing where we maybe try to put a, a couple PDFs together or something. I mean, we'd had, um, when we launched the Kickstarter, we'd already paid for some of the art, obviously all of the concept art that we'd created um, during the Kickstarter. Uh, uh, we, we had made that so as possible. We, maybe we could have packaged up some of the art and some of the, the story ideas as, as adventures or something and, and just put them online uh, or tried to sell them as PDFs or whatever, but uh, but really that that wouldn't have captured the the sort of uh, goal and, and and dream we had with this idea, right? The idea when we you know, sit together over beers in the the trade route tavern, uh, it was to create a quality uh, RPG setting book, right? That this is this isn't just a PDF. It's not just something that somebody's going to pay a couple bucks for. It's something that somebody wants to have. And it's going to look great sitting on a shelf, and or even look great opened up in your PDF browser in your in your uh, um, uh, on, on your tablet or whatever, right? Because it's just we just want that to be a great product. Um, and I don't think we would have been as satisfied with just an adventure or something small like that. Kind of the last thing about the Kickstarter, and then we can move on to some other things. But I. Um... As I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of people are utilizing Kickstarter now for game settings and game systems. Right. Uh, you know, as a, somebody who's DM now for a very long time, I've, I'm sort of an amateur game designer. You know, I'll add a rule here, I'll take a rule out, tweak a rule. I think everyone does that. But for someone who may be thinking about doing a Kickstarter campaign, do you have any words of wisdom, things that you learn through the process that you'll do differently next time, or or just think this is something we should have known before we started? I think the. Uh... I think the, the, the message I would I would give somebody in that situation would be do more legwork on your marketing plan ahead of time. I mean, we kind of knew because we'd heard from a lot of our friends who've been doing these sorts of, of things for, you know, oh, I mean, I, yeah, obviously I, I know guys like Monty Cook uh, pretty well, and, and I, you know, we had, a, we had great chats with, with people who have run some pretty successful Kickstarters, and, and these guys are telling us, you know, uh, man, it is all about the the networking, the communicating, the uh, the the managing, the uh, uh, giving people a reason to to come back to your Kickstarter every day and check and see what's new. Um, 
And I think our Kickstarter was kind of conservatively designed in that we we just simply said let's let's start kind of more with with uh, let's just tell people what it is we want to make and, and and work hard towards making that. And I think the 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 sneaky thing that you, that really defines a runaway Kickstarter is when you can tell people here's the thing that we here's the low the low bar for what we're trying to get over, but uh, creating a campaign where where People have a real stake in, in trying to push that bar as high as they can for you. And, and so, long and short of it is, um, I cannot overemphasize the importance of having a, a, a strong marketing plan already in place and and being ready to 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 launch with with all guns blazing. Uh, also, don't launch in a holiday weekend. I think that was a mistake. <laughs> so it's very that's a that's, that's a nugget, a bullet point you can put. Don't launch on a holiday weekend. Yeah. Excellent. Certainly yeah. that. And. Yeah, I think that, uh, and we had a, what we thought was a decent marketing plan going in. And actually, when we look at what we've done and what we did, I mean, not launching in the holiday weekend would have been the smartest uh, change, I think, because I think we lost a lot of momentum because of the 4th of July. Um, but the, uh, I mean, we, we also had a really good launch, right? The first four days was pretty solid compared to, to other projects. And then it kind of flattened out, and that's sort of the expected Kickstarter curve is either the one that we saw, where it was you know a lot of a lot of bids early and then a lot of backers come in late, um, and then just a few backers in the middle, or you get the ones like the the um, you know Reaper Minis. I think is it's not really it's kind of more apples and oranges, but uh, where you have a set goal that's easily reached, and then as you get those stretch goals more quickly, people are more excited about sharing that. Um, with all of their friends, right? If, if they know they're $100 from the next stretch goal, which will give them 10 more pages in their book or whatever, then they may be more willing to post about it on Facebook or spread the word a Absolutely. little bit more. Right? Yeah, and I don't mean this in any way negative about Reaper Minis, but it's almost like a pyramid scheme. Like once <laughs> you've invested your 100 bucks, the more people under you, the better yours is. Yeah. So there is definitely incentive for them to spread the word once they've committed. Yeah, it's a little sneaky. And, and there's others that have been successful where... Um, you know, they, I mean, we could have done a process where maybe at uh, maybe half as much as our initial goal, as our set that as our initial goal, um, with the idea that if we only hit halfway then uh, of what we really want, then what everybody's going to get is a soft cover black and white book. But if we manage to get it all the way up to the goal to, to where we really want it to be, right through the the various stretch goals. Then you know you've you've upgraded it through stretch goals to full color and more pages and hardcover and all that, and it's a way to go. And a lot of people have been successful that way too. Um, but the the risk there is that you don't meet your real goal, which is you know in our case our real goal was sixty thousand dollars or or more. Um, and you and, you know if we had only hit a thirty thousand dollar goal, we might not have, we might have killed the Kickstarter before we finished because I don't know that. We would have been happy creating a black and white paperback, you know, supplement. No, uh, yeah, and it's. I think there's some Kickstarter burnout that's already starting to kind of yeah. to, to persuade that people do that. That they set a really low goal, and then thinking they'll just make stretch goals that will eventually get them to the book they want to make anyway. And then those stretch goals, you can see that they're really not a stretch goal. It's just okay. You know, right. they have to get three times what they wanted to do what they actually set out to do. So I, th right. I think there's a there's a balance in the middle. I think you guys struck that pretty well. You had a, a high goal, but the the base product at that goal was a good product. It wasn't like, well, you know, we, we don't get this cool thing because we didn't get $80,000. Right. Yeah, we uh, 
we, we definitely, uh, uh, you know, we, we were just looking at the numbers, uh, uh, gosh, just Thursday, as far as the, uh, you know, the actual cost to, uh, to print, the cost to, to ship things, the, the amount of art that we're buying. And uh, I will say this, we, we are using all of our Kickstarter. I mean, we, uh, at, the end of, uh, at the end of this period, I'm going to, you know, you know, each of us personally is going to have worked real hard for several months to make about as much money as you would make delivering pizza for a month. So, yeah. so it really is a little bit of a labor of love, right? But uh, trust me, the, the, the money people put in the Kickstarter, it's going right into the product, and that's what they're going to get back. Right. And I think that's at the end of the day, that's what people want is a, a value. Uh, for their money, so I'm, I'm very excited about getting some more stuff in my hands. Whether it be, uh, you know, I think there was some teases of a bestiary. We might see some monsters soon, and then yeah. uh, there's some more artwork that came out. I think those are are great incentives to go back and keep checking that Kickstarter page, even now that it's over, as well as the Facebook page. I know I check them pretty regularly. Yeah, and, and we're starting to get to the phase now where we've got a lot more stuff coming in, right? I, I mentioned in the update earlier today that. We already have all the sketches for all of the interior art. Um, you know, we've got a bunch of final art coming in now. Uh, we should have our, our page layout um, uh, options to look out very soon, and those are things I think people are going to be pretty excited about. Um, and then, like the the things I want to show off are like the uh, I, I want to actually show, you know, the what I did with the art that um, Claudio had done um, on our website. We put up the little preview where it's like, here's the the art order blurb that we used, and then here's the first sketch we got back from the artist, and then here's yeah. how that sketch became the final art. Because I, I, as a fan of you know games, even though I've of course worked in in D and D for years, um, I always like seeing that pro that process, right? I always like seeing where things came from before they got to the final stage. Right. So. Th you know, I think that goes back to that sort of amateur game designer and a lot of people who role-play games or, or DM that you like to see the evolution of where with the nugget of the idea to the finished product. I, I do find, I think that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so I did, well, I won't jump ahead because you mentioned the art. And one of the questions that we got from the uh, from the, the website was about the uh, cover art. I think, is mm -hmm. it Todd Lockwood that's doing yeah, that? Yeah. Uh, I guess in some of the backer levels, uh, people get like prints of that. Uh, is there any updates on when that's going to be available or previewed? Um, well, the, the short answer is uh, uh, Todd's actually uh, out of town um, right now. I think he might be getting back in early next week. Um, I think he went off to a, a World Fantasy Convention. Um, but uh, we had known uh, really from months back in, in working with Todd. Todd was very upfront with us and said, "Guys, I, I cannot get a, a I cannot get you a window until probably uh, November." And, uh, you know, we talked it over and decided, you know, it's Todd Lockwood, right? We, we know this guy for years. We love his stuff. We're going to have some faith that we're going to get uh, the, the piece we want from, from Todd. And we're, we're going to be patient, and we know that means we're, we're just not going to be able to see much um, until we actually get into, you know, like this time of year. So uh, one of the things that's coming up that I'm actually very excited about in the next week or two is, is getting a chance to get with Todd. Uh, sit down with Todd and, and his uh, sketchbook, and just start talking about, hey, this, these are the components uh, uh, that we know we want to make sure are reflected in the setting, the the vibe we're trying to capture. And uh, Todd's very excited, actually. He's, uh, as he put it uh, when we were talking about this a couple months ago, that uh, uh, he's never actually painted anything uh, very Cthulhu-ish. Um, so he actually is kind of anxious to have a chance to to show a little bit of something like that. And I mean. It's kind of silly, right? But if we had a a 
a Conan-like barbarian fighting a Cthulhu-like monster on the cover, I think that's not a bad place to start. <laughs> you know, it's hard to mess that up. Let's let's start right. with that and, and then see where we where we get to. I think, I think, uh, I, um, yeah. I mean, I wish I had a picture I could have shown you guys months ago for this because it, it would have been great to show it on our Kickstarter. Yeah. It would have been great to show people these were what you're going to get for your print. Right. But we just knew that the timing was going to be difficult, and and now we're finally uh, about done with the waiting. And again, I'm sure that's just part of the process. But there were there were several questions that related to that. So certainly, future updates on Facebook or the Kickstarter page. Uh, there mm -hmm. are people that are really anxious and in getting some more information about that as well. So, uh, so again, I'm, I talked uh, earlier. I got to play in uh, Rich's game or one of the games you ran at the most recent Gen Con. Uh, had a blast, even though you did kill my character. And then my second character was blind for the whole half of the last fight, and I just <laughs> hid. Um, still had a blast, had a lot of fun. And I, but I missed the panel that you did. Uh, and you talk a lot about Thule there, but I follow people on Twitter that attended, and one of the things that I learned from that is that basically, uh, like pre-Frost Greenland is kind of the the geographic area that you guys are using for Thule. So, who came up with that idea? Like, where did that come from? Uh, I think that's another one of uh, another one of mine, mostly because I'm a uh, I, I've been a huge fan of Clark Ashton Smith's Hyperborea stories for for years, right? And I mean, it, it's a very it's sort of a, a bit of a niche thing. There's, there's not that many of them. There's only like seven stories written, and there's only a couple of other stories from the Mythos authors that that touch on uh, that, that touch on uh, Hyperborea. But one of the ideas of Hyperborea is that Greenland uh, was formerly uh, a big part of the Hyperborean continent called, uh, I think in Smith stories, Mu Thulan or something like that. Um, but uh, as it turns out, Greenland, if you just take a moment and kind of consider the, the geography of it, uh, it's, it's actually a really good size for a campaign setting. It's, it's about uh, a third the size of the United States, so it's, it's got all the elbow room you would want. It's not a crazy huge continent like Faroon or something that you know, is the size of Asia, right? You, it, it, it lets you have a, it is, you know, it, it's kind of just the right size. Um, it's a little bit mysterious in that nobody's really sure what's under the ice. Um, in fact, just a few weeks ago, uh, scientists discovered one of the largest canyons on Earth uh, is buried under the ice cap at Greenland. It's a canyon system that's uh, like half the size of the Grand Canyon or something, right? I mean, it's it's ginormous, and nobody knew it was there until just uh, just a few weeks ago. That's crazy. I actually remember reading that article. And it kind of made me think about this as well. So I think I'm, uh, the person I follow on Twitter that was there talked about you guys have actually like got satellite maps and you've you know you've done some research on what Greenland looks like under the ice. Was there anything similar to that canyon system that you found that sort of then inspired something? You're like, holy yeah. crap, that's so cool. We have to use it. There, there's a bit of that, right? Because one of the first things when Rich was talking about Greenland, I found, and I think it's just on the regular Wikipedia page for Greenland, right? It's, it wasn't really that hard to find, but you can get a topographic map of of, uh, of the under ice Greenland, and and a lot of it is because, of course, the ice has been pushing down for so long that that the center of the the uh, the island or subcontinent or whatever you want to call it is actually below sea level, right? So you you can have this sort of natural lake thing that's that's taking up a large point or a portion of the center of the of the continent or of the you know we'll call it continent, um, and then it has sort of the, the natural ring of mountains around it as well, be just simply because of the geography. So it, when you look at it and you kind of you just look at where the, the colors break down um, for the elevations, it, it was like this is natural, right? We've got 
a great place for you know Atlantean settlers would have come along and and started uh, colonizing the 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 southern end of it. We also tipped everything on its axis, so now it's like uh, turn turn everything about like 85 degrees to the uh, you know on its side, and you'll see you know kind of where we're going with the with the continent. Um, but you get the the Atlantean colonists colonizing the southern end. You have a lot of um, nefarious uh, uh, glaciers and things that, that are uh, occupying a lot of the sort of northeastern um, components of the continent. Um, uh, and then you have this mysterious interior that's just we're going to of course fill with jungles and saber-toothed tigers and all sorts of you know snake men and other uh, fun and interesting foes. So yeah, it, it's just it. It helps a lot, and it, it's great that it is based in a sort of a, a realistic um, map. We're of course going to take some liberties with that when we create our own map, but but it's a, it was an excellent place to start. Oh, fantastic! Um, I also know that again, jumping back to the Kickstarter just for a second, that at some of the backer levels, there were people got the opportunity to kind of help create or, or inspire some some things. I believe there were, I think, six or seven people I counted that were back at those levels. So where are you in the process with those people? Have you gotten their ideas already incorporated? Is that still in process? And is there anyone that you could talk about like it's just really cool? Um, well, so where we are in that process is, is uh, it's a good question, a great question, because we have, we, we've tried to get in touch with all of our, uh, all the people at the, like the dungeon builder levels and the, um, uh, uh, the tavern goes. Legendary yeah, Merchant Prince, thank you. I keep forgetting that one because we used to call it Honor Proprietor or something like that. So, but yeah, the Merchant Prince is the Dungeon Builders, the uh, uh, the Island guys. There's an Island I, person I still need to get in touch with. Um, but we're we have uh, uh, most of the Merchant Princes have have returned my call, as it were. Right, I've, I've got a lot of great information about um, what kind of not just like a name of a of a tavern or an establishment, but um, you know, a lot of history about, uh, you know, why, why the tavern is there or, um, or the, uh, they're not all taverns, I guess, but, uh, for example, there's one and I, so I'm, all the names are going to miss, are going to not come to my brain right now because they're on an email, which is not easily accessible, but, um, <laughs> but there's one that's built, it's like a, a, a fest hall built around an ancient, like, meteorite style uh, rock formation. So there was, you know, at one point there was a crater by this meteorite that had sort of blasted in the ground, and then they built a, a tavern around it. And then, um, of course, most of the people that, that come to this tavern slowly go mad if they stay there too long. So other than the, the heroes that, that run the joint, because for some reason they're immune. Right? So it's just little stuff like that, that, that that's enough of a little history and backstory we're going to throw try to throw into where this tavern is, you know, out in, somewhere in the, in the wilderness to... Uh, to give it a sense of really grounding to um, uh, to, to primeval fool itself, um, and uh, and yeah, so yeah, we got great some great tavern ideas. We've got a couple of dungeon ideas. Still waiting on a couple of dungeon ideas. Um, uh, the islands are you know going to be populated with interesting creatures. We don't know if we'll necessarily stat them all up, but we'll have nice descriptions of, of you know what kinds of things might fit, fit there. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's been a lot of fun to start interacting with the the, the fans that want to have a part of the world. So we're going to try to give it to them. Oh, I will say this: one of one of our merchant princes is uh, uh, actually my brother-in-law, and uh, he insisted on having a house of ill repute in the uh, in the setting book. So 
Um, you got to have, have at least one, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. there, well, at Stool, there will be more than one, but Perfect. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the things um, that I wanted to ask about is, is there going to be sort of like, I don't know exactly how to say this, like when, when I get the book and I decide I want to run a Thule campaign at my house, uh, part of the setting, is it going to be Eberron is what comes to mind where there's stuff happening that my characters will fit into. Like there was a war, these two tribes don't like each other, there's a famine, there's a slave trade, that like you will be designing these sort of events that are happening outside of my character, or is it more here's the stuff, you go play with it? Um, we're a little bit skeptical of, of trying to create a very extensive metaplot type structures uh, just because uh, you know we we're not going to be able to deliver uh, you know a stream of uh, a, a, you know a half dozen or a dozen Thule supplements uh, every year to keep up with the metaplot so we need we need the setting to kind of be uh, uh, captured as sort of a moment in time right a, a place that that uh, your characters are really the important story uh, of of your campaign. Now we we have many elements that, um, you know, I, I would I would say we're going to be you know kind of on the light side as far as like history, and this uh, big city is going to war with that big city. Where we will create as many interesting situations as we can, but we don't want to make that the the focus of the of the narrative. The narrative really needs to be about. Um, giving the DM this great big treasure chest of, of ideas and places and characters and saying, hey, we're not going to try and explain to you what the, 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 the real campaign here is you're supposed to build. Uh, we're just going to arm you with this immense sandbox and let you go play in it. So one of the other, a lot of, well, actually a lot of the other questions that we got related more mechanical, and I don't want to get into too many of those because it may be early for that, but specifically around 13th Age and the icons, Mm-hmm. So how is how are icons going to work in Thule, or are they going to even be in Thule? So yes, is the the answer to the last part. Uh, you know, we one of the the neat things about Thirteenth Age, and actually I've talked with uh, Rob Hainsa, one of the Thirteenth Age designers, is a, a, co- a former coworker and and a friend of ours as well. Uh, and uh, you know, we talked about how icons could work in Thule, and of course, even at at his panel at Gen Con, he's talked about how um, you know, icons are not necessarily like in in a different campaign setting. You shouldn't have the exact same like archmage and three and and so on that that appear in the thirteenth age book, right? That, uh, for example, if he wanted to run a thirteenth age game in in uh, the Forgotten Realms, uh, he had suggested you might have like the the Harpers and Elminster and the Zentarum be the icons that mm-hmm. that are and, and all the di- different NPCs and groups that are movers and shakers in the in the realms would be your icons. So one of the that, that sort of opened my eyes a little bit to what they're trying to do with the icons is build in um, your NPC uh, and and organizational uh, bits and and stories and and relationships into the player character's own story. So you you want to have the player invest his character in the world, um, and to do that, you can say, here are the people that you might be interacting with in some fashion, right? You either like them, you dislike them, you're at war with them, whatever. Um, and and to a degree, there's not a lot of uh, I mean, there's there is a lot of there isn't a let me see. <laughs> wow, I just blew up my brain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of uh, organizations that we want to depict in Thule, right? Whether they're um, 
you know, or NPCs like the Reaver King, the you know, the barbarian king of the ice that you know brings together his tribes of you know the scattered tribes of ice barbarians every however many years in order to uh, you know have a great feast and then go raid and maraud throughout the the continent, or you know the cult of Cthulhu, or um, uh, or the the minions of Set and the serpent spawn, or the Emperor of Catasia, or all of these people that we're certainly going to identify in the world as NPCs and organizations that are doing things um, that the characters might care about, right? You, you were going to fight Serpent Spawn, and knowing why they're there or what their motives are is important for a DM to understand. So putting minions of set or putting set in as a, uh, a an entity that the players interact with on sort of that icon level is important. So those those we've already identified the kind of... Uh, core organizations and NPCs we want to be in the game, uh, and from a, a 13th Age perspective, we use those as our icons, right? That everybody, a 4th edition player or a Pathfinder player, they're going to interact with the Queen of Quodeth, right? They're going to know who that person is or be able to know, not necessarily like, oh yeah, we grew up with her or whatever, but... Um, but you're going to also have a little bit more information from a 13th age perspective of, okay, you, we know we're going to point out these are the people that are the significant movers and shakers and fool. Here's a little bit more for the 13th age people about how you would interact with them in a positive or negative fashion um, and, and really draw on that. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that, right? I, I, I like the icon system and how they're presenting it in 13th age. And I think that extending that to other campaigns is really strong. Um, and I think we're going to be able to do a lot of that uh, for all the systems that we're supporting, but in particular for the, the 13th Age um, uh, portion of the book, we'll have some, these things detailed. Um, and then we'll also have, I mean, if, you, if you're playing 13th Age and you really want to stick with those core uh, uh, icons that they give you in the 13th Age book, we'll have probably a sidebar or a table or something that says, here are if you really just want analogs for those, we, we can give you a list of those, right, and, and let you know where they are and, and to go look them up. But really we, what we want to do is show you who the icons are, who the, the key people are in Thule, and, and we're going to do that, obviously. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, just in, like, I, I, excuse me, right now I'm, I'm participating in the D&D Next playtest, so I'm running a D&D Next game, and I've already kind of incorporated icons into that because I'm a huge fan of that. I think it's a great yeah. idea. And it kind of makes sense just, you know, here's Thule, here are the, the important people in the world, and the DMs can choose out of the people that will make sense for the game that they're running to make them icons. Exactly. It doesn't make sense for yeah. you to have a list of, these are the 13, but you're only going to interact with four of them ever because of the game that I'm running. So I think that actually is a very good idea to say, this is how you take any NPC that's important in your game and make them an icon. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I really like the way that, that um, and the, and obviously, this is there's been uh, things like this in some other indie RPGs, but I really like the way that Thirteenth Age has presented the idea of of players having the uh, uh, the initiative or the impetus to include um, their relationships with key world players in their characters' creation. Right? It makes the player care about who the Archmage is and why you know, and think about why he should interact with that character or that NPC as opposed to uh, what a traditional D&D game is you know in you know five ten years ago the DM would always have to tell you oh this is the the Baron of such and such and this is what what you know about him and give you a lot of history whereas 
uh, in you know the thirteenth age in games like it, the the player has the agency to to figure out who that baron was and why he cares about it, right? Yeah, there's a lot of the DM telling other their players, "This is why you care," right? Rather than the player saying, "This is what I want to care about." I, I exactly. You stand at thirteenth age. And then when when as a DM, because I I of course DM a lot more than I I play, but um, as a DM, I I like knowing what the characters are supposed to be caring about, right? If um, you know, if I know that the players are really uh, you know, of course, wanting to to put down the call of, or the cult of Cthulhu, then certainly I'm going to try to work that into the game. You know, like I avoid Cthulhu anyway. But, uh. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, just one other quick kind of a 13th age question. Um, it also relates just to magic in general. I know, and then if you look at the sort of the fool, and I think it's seven or eight sentences you you wrote down, kind of like what right. fool is. You do mention that it's a low magic sort of campaign or setting. So how will that work from an actual mechanical standpoint? If I'm a wizard in, let's say, 4E generic land versus a 4E full wizard, will I have different spells, less spells, or is it more of just a sort of, not only say fluff, but more of just the story element that I'm more mysterious than in those settings? Well, I, I, I think a part of it will simply be the, the fluff of you're not going to find many other wizards in a typical town, right? I mean, if... And a typical large town in a D&D campaign, we know from, like, uh, the third edition of Pathfinder rules that a town of 35,000 people should have X number of wizards of X number of level. Uh, well, those numbers are probably going to be way, way lower, right? Because like zero. <laughs> yeah. If you're a wizard and you're in one of the big cities, you might be one of only a, a two or three wizards there, um, you know, and you you know the other guys. It's like it's like being supervillains in a town or something, right? They're, they're going to be a little bit scared of you, and they're going to give you some respect because... Man, you're a wizard, and not anyone could not and not everyone could do that, right? That's that's kind of cool. Uh, in terms of other elements of low magic, Thirteenth um, uh, Age is actually already pretty far there, as far as the mechanics of that game system. Fourth um, edition D and D introduced an idea of inherent bonuses uh, at one point in I think it was maybe Player's Handbook Two, um, but the idea that um, Ma- magic items that you were getting simply to kind of keep up with the math of the game. Yeah. You didn't necessarily need to be magic items. You could just, as a DM, choose to give guys that, okay, your 10th level, you need a plus 2 to hit. Let's just say you got a plus 2 to hit, and I'm not going to worry about trying to find you a plus 2 sword. Yeah. 3rd um, edition, we would, uh, well, I say 3rd edition, obviously Pathfinder. We'll need to take a look at like how that actually kind of works, because I'm not familiar with a similar uh, shortcut in that in, in in that environment, but I think it's possible to come up with one pretty easy. Yeah. But it, the other least... aspect of it would simply be trying to encourage people that, uh, oh, like the 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 transactions of magic items, the buying and selling of magic items, might be something that is is not normally common in Duel, right? That you you should not expect that if you get ten thousand gold pieces, you can go turn that into a a, a, a belt of uh, you know giant strength plus two, and then uh, 2,000 gold pieces for a ring of protection plus one, you, you probably don't buy magic items the same way you would in, 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 a, in a standard magic level setting. Yeah, um, probably, they're probably fakes or cursed if you do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we certainly need to make sure that we, we are allowing players to still be the kind or have the same kind of characters that they would have in those games, but um, you know, giving the advice to both the DMs and the players on how to manage that without 
coming across a big treasure trove that's got a bunch of things sticking out of it and they're glowing and whatever, right? I mean, right. the inherent bonuses are a nice way to do that. I, I'm a big fan of that, right? They're, your sword's getting better because you are getting better, right? That, that's a, a cool thing. Third edition isn't quite, or sorry, Pathfinder isn't necessarily as lethal um, as fourth edition if you don't keep up with the, you know, getting new magic items, but even so, you know, Pathfinder characters also need to have some way to get those kinds of uh, effects into their characters' lives. But, you know, th and there's implications for, for what happens if you don't let them. And maybe that's the way you also want to play. We need to, we'll, we'll address that in the DMing <laughs> section. Uh, so that, that brings me to one of my other questions would be, uh, initially the Thule was sort of created with Pathfinder, D&D, 4E, and 13th Age in mind. Like, like there's going to be either a different book for each of those settings or maybe one book with the three sort of it, translations in the back. Um, so what was it about those three particular settings? Was it just a market share that those were the ones that were the most popular? Yeah, you know, we actually started with um, with Pathfinder, right? I know actually Rich Rich wants to take this on, so I'll, I'll let him do it. And then I'll talk <laughs> about the 13th age part. Okay. Um, in the case of uh, uh, Pathfinder, it's because there is a very easy and generous uh, game system license available um, for Pathfinder with with the the OGL, right? I mean, so um, and also it, it is the game that is uh, currently probably getting the biggest market share of people playing it, right? It's it's uh, it's very successful. A lot of people play it. It's 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 doing good in the stores. So it's like the combination of of hey, it's got a good market share and it's easy to work with as far as the license goes. Yeah, it's kind of a no brainer, right? Why wouldn't we? Start with Pathfinder as as, the, as at least one of the systems we work with. Um, the fourth edition game system license, obviously, when it initially came out, was a little bit more. Uh, it was a little bit uh, restrictive, right? A lot of people felt that it was a difficult license to uh, to work with. And in fact, there are there are elements of the original fourth edition game system license that that would prevent you from doing exactly what we're doing now. But those restrictions were eased up. I think what about a year and a half or so after uh, 4E came out. And uh, you are now able to to uh, to produce uh, a game in a fourth edition version and a Pathfinder version, and and we think that's great because we played a bunch of fourth edition. We like that game too. Um, I was gonna just call it good there and say, okay, 4E Pathfinder. That seems like enough game systems to me. But uh, Steve and Dave had some other ideas. Yeah, and. and Actually, initially, we were just going to go Pathfinder, and then I think it was after our first discussion with Larry, our, our print buyer, where we were talking about, you know, is it actually feasible for us to do something where we have, you know, more than one edition, I mean, it, without just making it a super long book. And, um, but yeah, the, the idea of printing the, essentially the same book, but swapping out parts of the book that are fourth edition or third edition or, or whatever, it was something we didn't know we could do until we talked to our printer about it, or print buyer about it. So, um, uh, David actually mentioned 13th Age first, I think, because, uh, and of course we were aware of it with Rob working on it, uh, uh, and it had also had a lot of uh, uh, recent support, right? One of the key aspects for, for us was identifying, at least from a, a, if I take a step back from what we like to write in, which is, of course, Pathfinder and D&D and, and, uh, uh, 40, um, if we looked at business cases for these things, we felt like, okay, well, Pathfinder has a business case because there's just a lot of people that buy Pathfinder stuff. So we thought we were, we were pretty, pretty certain we were going to be able to do that. Um, 
fourth edition, the business case there was that we, we actually felt that the, the market was being underserved, not necessarily that the that it wasn't there, but just simply that, that there weren't a lot of products available uh, for people to spend their money on. Um, and this is partly because the you know, Wizards have clearly been uh, pulling back the number of fourth edition products they were creating and, and putting a lot more of the resources toward D&D Next. Um, so we felt like you know there there might be some people out there in a very similar way that you know there were a lot of third edition players who didn't want to buy fourth edition products uh, or weren't excited about it. We felt maybe we could get a couple of people that were or enough people that were interested in a fourth edition product without um, or and weren't as interested in in going forward with D and D next. Um, and then you know thirteenth age came along and like yes there are a lot of people that are excited about it because it's the new exciting sort of uh, evolution of the game or iteration of the game. So um, we felt like that sort of three-pronged approach would give us enough, uh, a wide enough sort of market um, uh, target consumer base, basically, that, that we could, uh, or target market, um, that it would get us enough backers to, to make the whole thing worthwhile. So, so yeah, that's kind of where we ended up. So looking at your, uh, your Kickstarter data, does it show, was there a particular setting that got more requests? Because I know eventually you went back and now that if you got the PDF, I think you get all three anyway, yeah. but initially was there like more people after the Pathfinder version or 13th Age or was it statistically, you know, relevant? Well, you can certainly look at the, I mean, the, the only really mystery number is in there. I mean, of course, the PDF is, is a little mixed because once we said you get all of the the setting, uh, or all three three versions, if you get the uh, the PDF version, then Obviously, that meant that people could click on any of those three, and, and it's you can kind of use that breakdown as an indicator, but it's not necessarily as as clear. But the um, uh, the only real mystery numbers in the the um, uh, hardcover books are the early birds, right? And and they broke down more or less how we saw the the rest of the the uh, backers going. So it, it was clear that Pathfinder is the bulk of our our interest. Um, uh, and 13th Age and 4E are, are behind Pathfinder. Um, so when it comes to actually writing the... Age did have a very strong yeah. going. Uh, yeah. I, I would say that I was surprised because I, I really thought there would be a, a stronger uh, residual audience, so to speak, of, of 4E players. Yeah. And it really is very much the case that uh, Pathfinder is a lion's share, 13th Age is a, is a strong second, and 4E came in uh, uh, a surprising third place. But... Um, yeah, it's okay. We're, we're, we, we were we were committing to do those those all three of those game systems anyway, and, and we're we're happy to do them. So, so in the actual creating of the the book now, are you basically going to go A to Z with Pathfinder, and then make the necessary changes for the other two, or are you kind of all doing sort of all three at the same time for the different game systems? We have been playing around with uh, several different game systems uh, at so far at this point. Uh, I think actually, in the interest of of uh, uh, efficiency as far as moving towards our, our actual turnover process, we might need to uh, to pick a system and get that one knocked out first, um, and and then proceed, you know, to to do the follow-on work for the other systems. Just because it, uh, just because we are kind of racing that Chinese New Year that's hanging out there as the <laughs> as the, the the train at the other end of the tunnel, so to speak. Yeah, and also the the amount of of system specific content isn't actually that large, right? I mean, in in context of the entire book, right? We we've got a lot of setting information that is not 
system specific, right? That um, you know, we, we do have some mechanics that are going to be present for uh, uh, for players of each system, and we're of course got monsters that are going to be um, you know the, the, in the bestiary in the back of the, the book. So there's a number of stat blocks that we're going to have to do for each system. Um, but it isn't like we're writing three entire books. It's like we're writing um, we're writing maybe 80% or 75% of one book, and then you know 25% we have to rewrite for the two other books. Sort of like a movie with three endings. Oh, okay, so like the original Clue? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> one plus one plus two plus one. All right, so I think kind of getting close to wrapping up. Um, Evan, do you have any questions that I've left out? Yeah, I was curious when during your guys' creative process, did you feel like when you were coming up with things, was it, was it more you guys... Um, trying to create things that you wish existed and things... In your video, I remember on uh, that I watched, it said you had a culmination of 50 years uh, exp uh, experience with your team. With all that playing, um, did Thule turn into you trying to come up with things that you really liked from past experiences and saying, these are the, I really, these are the things that I really like, or was it, was it more you guys trying to come up with things that you wish you had? Um, I'll take a I'll take a whack at that. Uh, I can't really speak too much for for uh, Dave or Steve's motivations. I'm sure Steve will say something in uh, just a moment here. Um, for me, I, I've I've really been fascinated by this kind of like weird small corner of the D and D universe of uh, of 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 like Clark Ashton Smith's Hyperborea. Uh, of the Robert uh, Howard Conan stories, the ones that kind of got uh, a little bit, you know, on the weird scale of things. That 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 um, back in the day when we were working uh, at TSR and working on Ravenloft, and 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 we were describing uh, Ravenloft as uh, as the horror fantasy setting. Um, what I kind of saw was that there was a window out there of a, of an interesting niche of of the universe for what I thought of as fantastic horror. Right, a sort of different spin on it. It's it's not it's not Ravenloft, right? There's nothing gothic about Thule, but there is something there for, uh, you know, uh, things man was not meant to know, right? Uh, star demons from the sky, um, you know, barbarians uh, uh, who are basically superstitious and ignorant, and running across, you know, uh, horrible elder things, right? I think there's there is definitely a little niche of something rattling around there that I'd always wanted to do something with it. I just had never uh, found the right spot in 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 my professional career to to take a whack at that setting. And and so for me, I kind of came into the, into this process with the idea of, hey, I've wanted to do this for a long time. I've never found a great great opportunity for it. But you know, why not now? And why not why not us? Did you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I I'd, I'd say that the there are a couple of things that I've you know, sort of always wanted to to see as part of campaign settings that I, I'm um, that I'm sort of leading the charge and adding to the book in sort of our how to run Thule section, right? That um, I don't want to to spill our beans too much early on, but you know things. No, it's are, okay. Feel free. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, but things that are like uh, true DM tools, right? Um, the things I liked from uh, previous. Uh, setting books that that were really helpful. I I remember um, you know almost ten years ago going through the first ever on campaign setting book, and one of the things I really liked about it was that it had adventure hooks in just about every paragraph, 
Uh, it was just it was written in a way that really helped me uh, decide what my campaign was going to be. Even if I didn't use half of those adventure hooks, I at least had uh, an idea of what my characters would have to do in any of those uh, uh, parts of the setting. So I, I'd like to codify that a little bit more and give DMs uh, specific tools that let them bring that setting into their players a little bit more directly, right? Things like um, uh, magic item histories that tell, you know, just pick one of these and, and you know, okay, if, you're, if your character does find a magic item, well, it's not just a, a plus two sword. This was a, it's a, you know, a frost sword that has a history with the barbarian chieftain who found it in the middle of a glacier and, um, and it lost its power until you found it and now it's got the frost power again. So maybe you should go back to that glacier and find out what's going on if there's a connection between you and it. Right? That there are, are um, little elements like that that you can list together. The DM can read through those, figure out like, these are, are little nuggets you can give the players to make the world more alive or, or base an adventurer around or just to add a little bit of flavor. Um, uh, so that that's the kind of thing that I'm really excited about is uh, adding those tools to uh, to the book that are really directed at making the DM have the ability to to draw from and and make his campaign more vibrant. Um, besides the working around the the Chinese New Year hiccup and uh, besides the um, the Kickstarter campaign. Again, going back to the creative process, was there anything about the cre the creative process that you ran into and thought, man, this is a lot a lot harder than I thought it was going to be? What was the most difficult part of that? Uh, I, I will say uh, it took me a lot longer than I thought it would uh, to to uh, get the uh, uh, the art uh, aspect rolling. Um, it's uh, I, I, what you asked before, like what are the different hats uh, we're we're wearing as far as doing this this job? And one of the ones I've got is is art direction. So that meant um, we had to cook up a, a pretty big art order because there's it's a sizable book, as you guys know. There's uh, I think 83 uh, interior illustrations, and every one of those needs to have a description written, and everyone every one of those needs to be considered in context of. Hey, uh, how many of these? Uh, how many? How many fighters are we illustrating? How many thieves are we illustrating? How many? Uh, uh, how many different uh, ethnic groups are we illustrating? You know, I, you know it, it's kind of a little unfortunate when you open a book at the end of it and you discover, hey, we we did 83 pictures of white guys. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you kind of want to make sure you have you know a, a decent mix of male and female that you're representing uh, a, a bunch of different uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, people with a bunch of different appearance. Right? I mean, because it's, it's a it's a big setting. It's it should be a little cosmopolitan. Um, but uh, anyway, long and short of it is uh, the process of of getting the art uh, uh, organized and sorted out and and distributed to our seven different interior illustrators um, that that really uh, chewed up uh, weeks and weeks and weeks that I did not expect it would it would take. So um, my my hats off to uh, any uh, professional art directors out there, because now I have a, a much better sense of, of what exactly is entailed with the job. It's, it, 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 it did take more time than I thought. Sure, yeah. All right, um, so I, we'll just kind of retouch on this. You did, there was an update today on the on the site that there is a delay. We, we kind of talked about it, the Chinese New Year through a wrench. So the PDFs were originally, you thought they might get sent out in November. That's not going to happen probably January, you think? Mm -hmm. So does that mean... Our, our, our basic goal right now, and, and this this depends a little bit just on on how well we do with with 
the, the next big challenge for us is going to be kind of piloting through our page layout, editing, um, and production processes, right, that we obviously haven't produced the, the book yet. We still have to incorporate the, the various illustrations, the text, the page design elements. Um, our test case is uh, obviously, as you might expect, Chapter 1. Chapter 1 also happens to be the bulk of what's going to be the Traveler's Guide to Thule, which is the first one of the PDFs that we included in the, in the Kickstarter. So if things go well, and, and I'm reasonably optimistic about this, I think we should be able to deliver the Traveler's Guide to Thule um, in December. I'm, I'm hopeful about that. Uh, we we are just about to enter the editing phase on that. It's it's a short chapter. I mean, it's it's 20,000 words, right? So it's like 30 pages, but uh, but that's a small hunk of the book. And I think when we put it all together, it won't take that long to to do that. So it's mostly going to be kind of testing out our, our testing our processes from this point forward. Okay. Uh, once. Uh, so with with like I said, I'm I'm not gonna absolutely guarantee it because I I discovered one there's one thing I discovered is that I will find out things I didn't know as I go through this process. But I'm hopeful we'll get that in December. Um, if we are on the ball, we will be getting the PDFs mostly uh, mostly uh, finished because we have to send them to to China to to our printer. Um, those should be getting finished uh, sometime shortly after the New Year. And then it's just a matter of how long it takes us to, to kind of back them out from from PDF uh, from the printer turnover to the the PDF publishing versions. That's supposed to be pretty easy, but we're going to have to do a couple things. Uh, uh, long and short of it is, I'm I'm thinking we'll be delivering the PDF sometime, probably in the late January or February timeframe. Um, by the time all said and done, uh, as far as like the PDF versions of the book and. Um, and then, as far as when the uh, when the books get, you know, when the when the actual printed books show up, it's it will definitely be in the spring. You know, it's just a matter of uh, uh, which side of Chinese New Year we come in on. Gotcha. Um, not really. I mean, it, a lot of the time frame stuff. I mean, I know we're we're trying to do um, updates on the website or the the Kickstarter, but also we're doing those when we actually have stuff to show. Um, so. Uh, the next thing we hope to have will be um, the the layout stuff, but we of course need to get that finalized and ready to show before we, we put that out there. Um, you know, we want to, uh, of course, put the. I think the winged ape was going to be the, the winner on the the bestiary. Um, yeah, there were there were two or three questions about that, wanting to see yeah. when we were going to get to see that. Um, so part of that is is making sure the sap block's ready to go, because um, that basically requires a little bit of editing time ahead of the. Uh, putting it up, and we don't want to just put the first pass of the stop block yeah. up, or it's going to, you know, it, it'll it probably be perfect, but it might have a couple uh, errors that we need to fix. Gotcha. Uh, so, uh, you know, stuff like that. We're just, we'll keep looking for opportunities to show stuff. I know we've got some video footage of, um, of Todd Lockwood that we took a while back uh, when we asked him a bunch of questions about, you know, sort of the art process, and, and we were talking to him about Thule. Um, so we need to still edit that together and put that up. So all of these things are going to be uh, in upcoming updates and, and posts on our website. Um, uh, but I, don't, I just don't know really what the schedule is. It really depends on when we can get to those things because a lot of our effort right now has to be trying to get the book put together and, and ready to go because we know that you know we don't like being behind our initial schedule, but we, we still want to keep working as, as much as we can on getting it done. Of course. And again, I just really appreciate your time tonight, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, hey, thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank yeah. you.
give us feedback and comments at our website, dndacademy.com. You can check out previous podcasts at our website and subscribe to future ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a topic, we'd love to hear it. Email your ideas to podcast at dndacademy.com, and you can connect with us on Twitter at dnd underscore academy. As always, thanks for listening, and remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. <laughs> 28 are you sure it kind of oh, feels like 50 interview hey what's up this is evan and michael and this is dungeon talk episode 28 uh we hmm bleh. <laughs> On today's Dungeon Talk, we are bringing you an interview, Thule. Good job, you got it right. Did I? Yeah. Okay. It was good, solid. This is it, this is the last take, we gotta get it right. Go. Hey, what's up? This. Oh. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> On today's episode, we are bringing you an interview. Correct. <laughs> From the guys at Primeval Thule. Nailed it! Hey, what's up? This is Evan. And Michael. And. <whistles> Can't look at you.